In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. The light of the world. Just think of that for a moment as you consider yourself as a part of the body of Christ. You are the light of the world. If, if there is to be light in the darkness of this world, it is you, Jesus says. This morning we're continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 18. I hope you've been encouraged as we've examined the texts together. Such a wonderful letter, so helpful and encouraging, at the same time challenging us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And today is no different. We're looking at verses 12 through 18 where Paul encourages the believers to work out their salvation in the strength that God provides for them while they shine as stars in the darkness. And so let's stand together and follow along as I read beginning with verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you have bestowed on us to even comprehend it, to know it, and much more even to have it, Lord. We know that there are those who have no access to your word, and we praise you and thank you for it and confess to you so often we take it for granted, and we pray that you'd help us to not do that in this time together, that we would have ears to hear hearts ready to respond to what you say to us. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have uh, attended Cornerstone for a, a while, you've probably heard this before, and that's okay. I, I, uh, the story impacted me greatly as a child. My family went on vacation, um, and, and while on vacation, we stopped at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and did the little tour thing. You can kind of go down in and, and um, go into the cave, and, and they take you down through. And as you get deep into the cave, you enter this large room, at least you did years and years ago when I was there. And to demonstrate how deep we were in the cave, and even more so how there was no light that could get to that part of the cave, they would have you hold hands around this room that we were in, and they shut the lights off. They prepared us ahead of time, but they turned the lights off. And the point of it was 
to show you how dark darkness really is down there. And it was dark. I mean, you couldn't see anything. And so you're holding hands to the, next, to the person next to you. And then, to, to kind of demonstrate another point, the leader of this tour lit a match. And it was amazing that this one match in the midst of this completely dark room gave light. Light enough that we could see. Now, it wasn't like this, but you could see. You could see people across the room. You could see the person holding the match. You could see the person next to you. It gave light in the midst of this darkness, this small, insignificant, flickering match. And even in this text today, we see something similar to that. Paul says that we, as insignificant as we feel, As small as we feel, as the body of Christ, we can shine in the darkness. And he tells us the way. Verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It begins with, Therefore, and it tells us that what Paul is about to say here in this text is connected to what he has just said. If you were here last week, you know the the great hymn that Paul proclaims in the previous verses, the glorious truth of the gospel. And it is a joy and a blessing to be able to contemplate the realities of what he says in those verses. In verses 5 and following through verse 11, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand that text? And if you understand what Paul is saying there, Do you see how much of a gift and a blessing it is that you do understand it? That you you do know it? That you do believe the truth about Christ? That is an unbelievable gift and blessing. It's a wonderful and worshipful truth. And it has practical implications on our lives. Paul says here in verse 12, Therefore, since that's true, since the glorious gospel is truth, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." He begins here in this text by commending the Philippians. They have and they are obeying Christ consistently. 
They obeyed when he was with them, and they are obeying when he isn't able to be with them. He commends them before giving them a command. We see this in other places as well. In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, where Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul commends them and then gives them this command. Work out your own salvation. Now, before we get into this, I want to mention something here that I hope helps us as we consider the command Paul gives us to work out our own salvation. We tend to think, in particular in our culture here, we tend to think and read things with an individualistic lens. And certainly, as we come to this phrase, work out your own salvation, we think, okay, Tony, let's get in the right mindset. This is to you, Tony. Think, Tony, what does God want Tony to do here? Because it says own. Faith and salvation often in our mind are individual endeavors. We have, as we say, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, We often miss the corporate commands and interpret them as personal. And I'm not at all wanting to give the impression that the Lord does not want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but that is not how it is specifically written here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling does not refer primarily to the salvation of individual believers, but to working out our salvation within the body of Christ. The application of the text is first corporate. In the original language, it is you all work out your own salvation. Paul's saying that this is how the church body should conduct themselves. We need each other. We lean each on, on each other. We do this together. And then it is to the individual. And so let's look at it. There's two parts to this. There is our work and there is God's work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul wants us to know that our work in this is 100% dependent on and enabled by God's work on our behalf. In fact, our work is in vain apart from God's work on our behalf. Paul's not saying here when he says work out your own salvation 
that we can somehow earn our righteousness by doing the right things. We can't. The process of sanctification is long and sometimes slow. In fact, it is a lifelong endeavor. Paul's saying, work out your own salvation. How? By what he has written for sure. Having the mind that is ours in Christ. Having humility. Work out your own salvation. Consider Jesus' words to take up your own cross daily and follow him. And we're to do this with fear and trembling, this life of reverent adoration of God. And there's a means to that. We, we, we're so prone because of our devotional lives and taking small tidbits of Scripture that thankfully the Lord, when He wrote the Scriptures, divided for us into nice verses and chapters with headings above them. If you're new... That's sarcasm, okay? <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, we have a gift. We live in a time and a place where our Bibles are bound, and we have these headings above them, and it kind of gives us a, a, a helpful uh, insight to what is about to be said. And not just that. You have the means of, if I say, hey, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, you can actually do that. Because there is a big number, two, and you say, well, that's the chapter, and there's a little number, 13, and that's the verse, and he just told me to go to that, so I'll go to that. But that's not the way these were delivered. There were letters, right? We, in our minds, because of how we look at the Scripture so often, we divide it apart. So this section stands alone, lights in the world, in our minds at times, and we can't do that. He's just told us a way to work out our salvation in, with fear and trembling, with reverence, to consider Christ who emptied himself and was slaughtered for us and was exalted to the highest place and to whom, no matter if they want to or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. And now he's saying, walk with that attitude. Work out your salvation with that attitude. A life of reverent adoration of God. And Paul's clear here. Here's why you should work it out. Why you should strive toward sanctification. Because it's not you. If you are being sanctified and you are seeing those happen as you work out your salvation, it's God. It's God doing it. We're not called to obey in our own power, somehow manufacture obedience in our own strength, because we cannot, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And both of those are incredibly important. He's working in you to will, and He's working in you to work for His good pleasure. God is working in us to bring about our salvation all the way. 
God does more than simply strengthen our willing and our doing. He makes it. He creates it. He grows it. D.A. Carson writes this, God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. Augustine put it this way, our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because of His grace causing our free will to produce them. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Think about the hope in that. Left to ourselves, we couldn't manage more than vain glory, emptiness. Even if we wanted to try. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, awakens us, saves us, empowers us, works in us to bring about our salvation to the very end. Paul says at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. Paul knew this. Paul knew that it was not him. It was all God. That's why he says in Colossians 1, 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out as the body of Christ, labor, strive, toil. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as Paul's saying here, that looks like humility first and foremost. And know if you're seeing progress, it is to the praise of his glorious grace because it is. Because it is him. It is God working in you. And that is grace. That is hope. And it's reason for us to embrace this call to humility that he is giving us throughout this text. This is again Paul's description of a life worthy of the gospel. Working out your own salvation. Similar to this previous text, this attitude we ought to have as the body of Christ. It goes on in that. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What a difference the church would make 
if we simply embraced this verse in light of verses 5 through 11. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ did. And this is how he is exalted. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't dispute. Live all of life as the body of Christ, both corporately and individually, doing everything you are called to do without grumbling and without disputing. We read this verse and we have to acknowledge that living in a manner worthy of the gospel is hard. It's hard. I mean, don't grumble. The temptation to complain and argue is constant, individually and as the body of Christ. And the reality is, we are all going to be tempted to grumble. We're all going to be tempted to argue. Grumbling and disputing is the language of our culture, and we've grown accustomed to it. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Such a great verse. Would the world believe that that verse is in the Bible and embraced by the church? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only... What is good for building up? As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How? How do you do that? How do you live that way? Consider the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Consider the gospel. What do we deserve from God? What do you and I deserve from God? And what have we been given? We have no reason to grumble. We have no reason to grumble. We have no reason to dispute. And Paul's not saying here that there won't be disagreements. We know that there's disagreements. He says in 1 Corinthians, and there, yes, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be factions. And that shows who's right, who's true 
But he's saying live in a way. Live a life that is free from grumbling or disputing. And he goes on. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the fruit of living corporately and individually without grumbling or disputing and being humble, counting others more significant than yourselves, as he said in the previous text. Grumbling is a terrible thing that is often overlooked as a little thing. Here, Paul gives us motivation to live without grumbling and disputing. So that, he's saying here that grumbling and disputing will weaken our witness. He's writing to the Philippians who are experiencing adversity. They're experiencing persecution. And he says that they would be blameless and innocent toward God and that their behavior if not grumbling and disputing, would set them apart. They would demonstrate that they were children of God, not children of a crooked and twisted generation. They would, he says, shine as lights in the world. Shine in the midst of darkness. Those who grumble as a part of the body of Christ are, as Kent Hughes puts it, undertoes to the body of Christ. That is such a good analogy. Undertoes to the body of Christ. If you've been to uh, the ocean, you know what that picture is saying. If you feel as you walk out, you feel the undertow and you know what that means. That those whose lives are patterned after grumbling are people who are pulling others away from the shore rather than bringing them closer to the shore. You remember how we started this morning in Matthew, Jesus saying, you are the light of the world. He didn't suggest it. He didn't encourage it. He didn't command it. He didn't say, hey, go be the lights of the world. He said, you are. You are the light of the world. And he goes on, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We will shine like stars in the night, like a city on a hill when we do not grumble, when we do not dispute. Christians who live humbly as a body united in Christ, considering others more significant than themselves, shine, Paul says, with the light of the resurrection in the dark world. As we hold fast to the word 
of life, the gospel of Christ. I would ask you, do your words sound more like someone who is grateful or someone who is grouchy, someone who is grumbly? Consider this sincerely. If we could alter our language, motivated by who Christ is and what He's accomplished on our behalf, to a language of gratitude and praise, Paul says we would shine in this world. That's such an inspiring and enticing expression, isn't it? Shine in the world as lights. And it's an invitation We can make a difference in people's lives simply by obeying this verse. In contrast to grumbling, we ought to be defending and proclaiming the word of life. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We ought to use our lips, which overflow from hearts impacted by the word of Christ, to proclaim gratitude and gospel grace to a twisted and crooked world. And in that, we will shine among them. This is a life worthy of the gospel. And we must notice here in Colossians as well as in Philippians, this all begins with how we communicate with one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God toward one another. And Paul says here in this verse, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, it demonstrates again his eternal focus. He will boast in the grace of God who worked in his life and through his life. And he sees the effectiveness of his ministry as being tied to the way that those in the church lived out their calling with one another. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Can't separate this command from the realities of the gospel. The realities of the gospel are, if you are in Christ, that's already true of you. Ephesians 1 screams that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Already done. You are holy and blameless before him already. That's what he continues in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy 
and blameless before Him. Done. Unalterable. So this isn't saying start becoming that. It's saying live out the reality that is true in you because of Christ. You are holy and blameless. You are set apart because of Christ. So act like it. Don't grumble or dispute. That's a lie. That's living as if you have things to complain about. You have none. You have nothing to complain about. You have nothing to argue. You were saved. You were rescued out of darkness. Don't pretend like you're still in it. Don't don't live as if you're still in it. You've been sanctified. You are blameless and innocent. You are children of God without blemish. But when we grumble and when we dispute, we cover it. It's exactly what Jesus says. No one lights a, a candle and covers it. Why would you do that? Don't grumble. Don't dispute. And the world will see what Christ has done in you to make you holy and blameless. It goes on in verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Our hearts, our attitudes should be tied to the gospel and not to our circumstances. See how much Paul loves the church here. He's more concerned with their faithfulness than his own suffering. In fact, Paul says that he's happy to see himself and his own blood poured out so that the gospel is advanced. He urges the church to follow in his example, pour out your lives and rejoice with me. Paul gives a word for joy four times in two verses. In the midst of difficulty, I am glad and rejoice, and you should be glad and rejoice. In other words, you don't have reason to grumble. Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and he enables you to live with that kind of humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. In the shadow of the cross, you will resist the temptation to grumble if that is your position, if that's your mindset, if that's your heart connected to who Christ is and what he's done. True humility. And he says you will shine as stars in the night and people will see and God will be glorified. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. And I want to read again. I know we've read this so many times, and it's intentional. Because I want us to know it, I want us to embrace it, because I really do believe that Paul is saying here, when and if we do, we'll realize that He enables us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
to count others more significant than ourselves, to look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so to prepare our hearts again for communion this week as we prepare to take the bread and the cup and we consider the realities of what Christ did so that we could be holy and blameless before God, so that we could come to Him, so that we could be with Him forever. Let's read again verses 5 through 11 in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. We believe that this is truth. And we confess together Jesus is Lord, even as we prepare to proclaim together through taking the bread and the cup his death. We thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. We thank you for Jesus' blood being poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask that you'd help us. Help us to embrace the truth of the gospel. To walk in newness of life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Pray that you be glorified in these moments as we sing, as we partake together of the bread and the cup. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.